Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Hello, everybody. It is December the 22nd, uh, another somber day in 2020 when it comes to um, COVID deaths. Uh, Today, uh, 1,963 people died. Uh, Collectively, it's 319.763. We've become all too familiar with the the mathematics of death in 2020. I'm not sure if this is a way of of cheering anyone up, but there have been worse moments in history. Take, for example, August 6th and 9th in 1945. Uh, On those uh, dark days, the Americans uh, dropped two nuclear bombs, one on Hiroshima, one on Nagasaki killing collectively between 129 and 226,000 deaths. Uh, An appalling day in the history of humanity, if that's the right word to use. Americans only came to learn about the the human suffering uh, of these bombs, the consequences of these bombs, in the work of, of the great New Yorker journalist John Hershey, who in August 24th wrote his, uh, wrote his, uh, 30,000-word short book article, Hiroshima, in which the whole of the New Yorker was given over. Uh, A very profound piece of writing. Uh, Many people consider it the most important, the most impressive, and the most influential piece of journalism by any American in the 20th century. Uh, Hershey is, is, uh, and the book, uh, and the New Yorker piece, of course, was turned into a a best-selling book, uh, which has been read by uh, probably everyone watching this. Uh, my guest today, Leslie M.M. Bloom, has written a book about the book or a book about Hirsch's article, Hiroshima, which got turned into a book. It's a wonderful read in many ways as elegant and compelling and, and shocking as, as Hirsch's work. Um, uh, Leslie, what compelled you to, to, to do this book? Uh, it's an enormous endeavor. I know you spent years traveling around the world, you needed translators. It's a serious endeavor. It's a short, very readable book, but behind that book is an enormous amount of research. Um, Yes, and it was the great love of my professional life doing this book. And um, I didn't come at it originally from, you know, from the nuclear space or, you know, with the idea of being a nuclear advocate. Um, I came at it as a journalist wanting to support the community of journalists uh, here in America and and around the world. And, you know, this has been a very rough five years for journalists as we've been designated enemies of the people by our our outgoing uh, American president. And so when I was looking for a big historical newsroom narrative, I wanted something that would really drive home the importance of of our independent press and of investigative journalism. 
I've always had an affinity for, for World War II stories. A lot of what I was looking at initially were in the European theater. And um, one night my husband and I were having dinner and talking about what my next topic would be. And he said, you know, I wonder how Hiroshima and Nagasaki were covered. And we always, you know, we're looking at it as journalists from a logistical point of view. You know, how on earth do you get in on a nuclear fallout um, site? You know, these two cities, which are the only cities that were ever on the receiving end of nuclear attack um, and and cover the story there. And, and you know, was the U.S. proud of of its handiwork there or was it um, you know, trying to downplay the e extravagantly awful after effects of their then experimental weapons? So I dug into the story. And I found out that actually there indeed was a considerable cover up by the U.S. government and military uh, in terms of how they um, uh, were depicting the true nature of the atomic bombs, especially regarding the radioactive qualities of the bombs and their uh, the effect of the bombs on human beings and how they are, uh, of course, the, the weapon that goes on killing long after detonation. Uh, you mentioned the crisis of American journalism, and the hero of your book is John Richard. Uh, do I pronounce it Hersey or Hershey? It's Hershey, he's, right? He's, a, he's Hersey, and he used to, if he ever got an, uh, a letter addressed to Mr. Hershey, he would throw it throw it well, away in the garbage can right away. So he wasn't a chocolate man, Hersey. <laughs> Uh, remarkable man, remarkable in many ways because he was so unremarkable or at least considered himself unremarkable. Tell me a little bit about this guy, Hersey. Um, why? Gladly, yeah, gladly. He, um, so Hersey at the time when he gets into Hiroshima, he's 31 years old, but he's already, um, He's he's a, a, a celebrity uh, uh, journalist and and author, and so he had been a war correspondent for Time Magazine from 1939 uh, till 1945, and he had covered every um, theater in the in the war, Pacific, European, um, and he had written several really celebrated wartime novels. One of them, which one, uh, one of which won the Pulitzer Prize. That was um, uh, a Bell for Adano, right? That's right, and um, it was immediately made into a movie. Uh, it was. Made into a Broadway play. I mean, I can't overstate what a sensation the, the book was. And um, so he he was a man about town. I mean, there were invitations to the White House. There were, in, you know, he was mentioned in gossip columns because he also happened to be, you know, movie star handsome. He was married to uh, a Park Avenue heiress. But who, he was, uh, who, who, who had uh, dated JFK, right? Yeah, she, she had a, a, a pretty, uh, pretty fancy romantic pedigree. You and, call her, and, and, and I use this word carefully because it's your word, paramour of JFK. So uh, I don't know what that means, but. Yeah, it's, well, it's, it's hard. They were, what, whatever dating meant back then, um, you know, Hersey's first wife and uh, JFK had been seeing each other, paramour. Hmm. Um, so, uh, a beautiful Southern aristocrat, a, a, a brilliant, Yale-educated, award-winning uh, journalist. Uh, mm -hmm. And yet the funny thing about him and the way you present Hersey is he didn't seem to have a particularly high opinion of himself. He's very different from those kinds of superstars that you normally associate with enormous success. 
I, you know, I would qualify that. I wouldn't say that he didn't, you know, think much of himself. I think he thought quite a bit of his abilities. I mean, he knew he was a great writer. He knew he was a good reporter and he knew he wanted to, to occupy a very high stage of his profession, but he was, he was unique. Um, and, you know, as you say, he, he did have a really incredible pedigree, you know, very elite at the time, uh, you know, Hotchkiss educated, then Yale, then Cambridge University. Interestingly though, he was a, um, well, I call him, he's, he's the ultimate insider in that respect, but in many ways, he's also a, a, the ultimate outsider because he, he wasn't to the manner born. He grew up um, the, ch the child of uh, two missionaries in China and then came back to the States as a, as a preteen and kind of got injected into that into that whole Hotchkiss Yale world. He was a scholarship student all the way through um, at those at those uh, educational institutions. And so he's he's on the inside, but he's also on the outside looking in. And I feel strongly that that positioned him to be a really excellent observer um, later on and a really fine journalist because there was always this feeling of not not really belonging, um, which is an enormous advantage in, in our line of work. Um, and in terms of, you know, not having a high opinion of himself, I would re rephrase it as he had a humbleness. And also he was a, a journalistic purist in the sense that he felt that he should not be the center of the story. What he was covering should be the center of a story. And so this really comes through when he writes Hiroshima in 1946, because he's all but absent from that narrative. I mean, it's a very, mm. uh, the, the retelling is very, it's it's almost clinical. Um, and you don't see any hint of his opinion, of his voiciness or anything in it. And as you remark, you know, that's a very significant um, departure from the kinds of journalists that would follow him later, who were called the new journalists, who were all about being in the spotlight, who were all about voicing us, the journalist celebrity. All right, the Tom Wolfs of the world. You, you suggest that, mm -hmm. in a way, uh, Henry Luce, the founder of Time, uh, he he was uh, Hearst's doppelganger. They they have very similar backgrounds, but quite different lives. And whilst they were connected in many ways, they never really clicked. Well, they had a fascinating relationship. So, you know, so Hearst, uh, you know, Henry Lewis was the founder and the the uh, head of Time Inc. And Hersey, you know, again wrote for for Time from 1939 until 1945, and for Life also, which was also under the the, the Time umbrella. And um, Lewis always had his eye on Hersey. He really he liked him, but it was also almost like a narcissistic fascination with him because Lewis, like Hersey, in this strange twist of fate, had also grown up as what um, Hersey called a mish kid, a missionary kid in China, and then had gone to Hotchkiss, and then had gone to Yale, and then had gone to, to Cambridge. And so they were, they had this, this, this strange mutual trajectory. And so Lewis, you know, kind of fixated on on Hersey and saw him as a as an heir apparent and you know groomed Hersey. Um, he thought to eventually take over Time Inc. Um, this would not play out. Um, and uh, when Hersey went over to Moscow to set up the Moscow Bureau for Time in 1944, um, he came to loggerheads with Luce because every time Hersey would write an article about the Russians, Luce and his his um, main editor back at the at the, the mothership of of Time Inc. would rewrite it and you know. Henry Luce absolutely hated Soviet Russia. Um, and so Hersey just was appalled by this um, 
robbing of, of, of his journalistic integrity and he ultimately he, he quit Timek. Um, oh, yeah. and, and, and the parallel now there are lots of parallel narratives in the book but the the really interesting from a journalistic point of view the really interesting parallel uh, parallel narratives are between Luce's time that uh, Hersey rejected and Harold Ross's New Yorker which was yeah. an entirely different operation from time uh, we associate the New Yorker now with being a very glossy, successful magazine, but in 1946, it wasn't. Yeah, it was this wonderfully raffish upstart that had only started, you know, 20, 20 years earlier in 1925. And it was, uh, well, first of all, I have to say that Henry Luce and the founder of the New Yorker, um, Harold Ross, hated each other. I mean, it was a famous rivalry that played out in the pages of, of both of their publications. I mean, the ridicule and the, the disdain that they had for each other was total. Um, the New Yorker was- well, They were opposites in, in, in every sense. One was a journalistic purist. The other was really one of the sort of the pioneers show business journalism. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and also a, a right-wing propagandist. Right. That is Henry Luce. Um, and, you know, Harold Ross had founded this magazine that was, you know, the ultimate city slicker magazine. I mean, it was for urban sophisticates. And, you know, Henry Luce is all about, you know, getting creating the media empire. Harold Ross, on the other hand, with The New Yorker, starts to panic every time they, they hit 300,000 uh, readers. He said, what yeah. are you doing wrong? Too many people are reading us. Um, uh, yeah, I love that quote. I, I wrote it down. It said, too many people, uh, he says, about 300,000 readers. We must be doing something wrong. That's my next justification when, my, when one of my books only uh, sells five copies. I mean, he's, 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 he's positioned all of us for failure. Um, yeah, although he, ironically enough, he didn't fail. It, it, in a sense, like Ross and, and Hersey, there's a sort of effortlessness uh, uh, about what they got up to. So let's, you know, we've talked a lot about American journalism, very interesting, but of course, and I use this word carefully, that the heart of our story is the devastation in Hiroshima after the war. How did Hersey and the New Yorker combine to, to, to write this story? Well, after Hersey quit Time Inc., he, you know, instead of being the heir apparent to this media empire, he's now a freelance journalist. And he's he's wanted to write for The New Yorker, and The New Yorker has wanted him for a while also. So he makes his way into The New Yorker with a, a blockbuster profile of JFK Jr. Um, and his uh, heroic... Um, uh, uh, he he had been uh, in the navy in the in the Pacific yeah. and his famous PT boat account um, when it was charged by a Japanese destroyer and split in half and how he you know saved a lot of his crew. So uh, JFK uh, again had been a, a former lover of Hersey's now wife. She introduced them. Hersey heard the story. He said, I have to have it. And so that was his entree into The New Yorker. The New Yorker published it. And then Reader's Digest eventually syndicated it. Um, so one day in late 1945, Hersey has lunch with the deputy editor at The New Yorker, William Sean. And they are talking about Hersey's going to do a, a big Asia reporting trip, in, in, starting in China, which is, again, his, his home country, the country of his birth and then go over to, to Japan. And they're talking about um, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and there's something strange to them about the reporting that has been coming out of, of the, the atomic cities. 
um, for the last you know, four or five months. And even though at that point, all of the major press, allied press organizations have bureaus or correspondents on the ground there, Hiroshima, this is, it's disappeared as a story. And they realized, they put, they put their finger, Hersey and, and William Shaw, and they put their fingers on what has been missing from the coverage up to that point. They say, all of the coverage of the atomic bombs was about the physical landscape devastation, which was obviously catastrophic, but none of it was about the effect of the bombs on human beings, what happened to the humans under the mushroom clouds. And they may have had some sense because the journalism community then was pretty close knit and Hersey had been in the, you know, the, the allied um, press corps um, through the entire war. So he, he had colleagues and friends on the ground who were based in Tokyo, they may have had some sense of how restrictive the U.S. occupying forces had become in terms of reporting from Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but they decided at that lunch that Hersey would try to be the first reporter to get in on the ground in Hiroshima and report on what the bombs did, not just to, to buildings, but to human beings. And you uh, wonderfully described this project as the journalistic equivalent of a Manhattan project, highly secretive, brilliantly planned, and perhaps unfortunately, like the Manhattan project, very, very successful in, in terms of what they intended to do. I was amazed in reading the book with how much success they had, because it was yeah. a very it was a very risky enterprise on Absolutely. so many levels, and yet nothing seemed to go wrong. It was almost out of James Bond. Well, a few things did almost go wrong. I mean, a lot of things could have gone wrong, right? I mean, first of all, you know, the, 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 he, Hersey could have been blocked from entering Japan because uh, General MacArthur, who was the supreme commander for the Allied forces, had locked down Japan really quickly upon occupying. And part of that was uh, involved really locking down the, the Allied press corps and the Japanese press corps also. So anybody who wanted to come in and uh, to the country had to be carefully vetted by MacArthur's, what we call PROs, press relations officers. Um, if they didn't like you, if they thought you were not gonna be sympathetic, you weren't coming to Japan. Um, he got in, um, and, and partly because uh, Hersey uh, had written one of his many wartime books was a very flattering uh, book about MacArthur himself. And Hersey later on said that he wished he could take the book out of print because it was too adulatory. But you know, at the time when you're applying to MacArthur to come in to occupy Japan, it's probably pretty helpful to have written something, you know, that that's such a, you know, a pucker up piece of, 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 of journalism. So that could have gone wrong. Um, he, they could have really restricted his movements once he got in the country, but they almost unfathomably gave him two weeks on the ground in Hiroshima, even though it was a restricted topic. But by the time Hersey got in, in May of 1946, almost a year after the bombings, the U.S. government and military felt that the the story had been largely contained and that Hiroshima was an old story and no journalist of Hersey's um, stature is going to write up an old story, right? I mean, it's it just for, for, from their point of view, they, they likely thought that it was almost like a, a, a form of warfare tourism in mm -hmm. a way where he's just going down to see, see for himself. Um, I don't think that they ever expected that he was going to write something like he did. And then, as you know, from reading the book, and I don't want to ruin too much for, for possible readers of the book. Um, well, it's, I, I don't know, is it, do you consider it as a novel, giving away the story? Because I think most people know how it ends. But there, there are a few, you know, a few other blocks. I mean, like, so mm. for instance, the first thing, I'm the first person to, and my, my research team and I are the first to reveal that 
he had that Hersey and his team had to submit the manuscript of Hiroshima to the War Department because their hands were tied, um, and that you know could have that the survival of Hersey's story, given those circumstances, were, was not a foregone conclusion. I yeah, mean, and uh, I was amazed with that. I didn't know that story from the book, but um, they had to submit it to Leslie Richard Groves, who some of these characters seem like they're they're they're. They're coming out of Doctor Strange Love. They look like characters out of Doctor Strange Love, yeah. and uh, you 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 have a, a wonderful section on how the the New Yorker Harold Ross and his team wrestled about whether they should even submit it. They submitted mm -hmm. it, and the guy made a couple of editorial changes. But basically, he didn't understand, as you say in the book, mm -hmm. that Hearst's book revealed the human suffering. They were so so blinded by their own sense of American strength and by the justice of the war that they just didn't get it. It's amazing. It's it's that also, and I, again, I think that, you know, Leslie Groves and his, his colleagues considered Hiroshima to be an old story. And I think that they just thought that America had moved on, American readers had moved on, that they really, it wasn't gonna create the furor that the story indeed created. But also, you know, Leslie Groves, did by by the time Leslie Gross had been very involved in initiating the initial cover up of, of the, the true effects of the bomb. And he even you know was hauled in front of Congress in, in fall of 1945 and to to talk about the radioactive qualities of the bomb. And he assured um, the, 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 the members of Congress present that radiation poisoning to the extent to which it, it had um, uh, occurred because he was only then just starting to concede that it existed at all, he assured them that it was actually a very pleasant way to die. Mm. So, uh, <laughs> um, Stanley and, Kubrick could, or Peter Sellers, or, or Stanley Kubrick couldn't have made that one up. Could well, they? it would have seemed. I mean, if they had written that as dialogue, it would have seemed overly contrived. I don't know that you would have gotten away with it in a script. But you know, so so at the beginning, Gro Groves, you know, is again very involved in creating a certain narrative around the bombs, right? But by the time Hersey's story is 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 has been researched and written. He researched it and, and interviewed in Japan, and then he wrote it back in New York. By the time it's submitted to him in the summer of 1946, Leslie Groves' priorities have changed also. And so he's not just about you know creating a, a whole world of secrecy around the bomb and including um, the, the, the true effects of, of those bombs. Now he's thinking he's in full Cold War mentality. Right. And at this point, his highest priority is you know getting American public support for creating what he saw as being the biggest, the best, and the most nuclear weapons, really starting to build out the nuclear arsenal. Because he's already thinking about the time when the US is not going to have the nuclear monopoly anymore. He predicted that the Soviets would get the bomb in between, between five or 20 years. Well, guess what? It was four. They got it in 1949. And so when he's seeing a manuscript like John Hersey's come across his desk, and Hersey's manuscript, which shows the bombing of Hiroshima from the point of view of six regular people on the you know the day of August 6, 1945, and the horrific devastation. Leslie Groves is thinking, mm, you know, this might turn people against the bomb, but it might also perversely give people, you know, give us more support for the bomb. Because if Americans read this and they put themselves in the shoes of these six protagonists in the book, and they imagine in the future, a nuclear bomb being, you know, lobbed at Dayton or New York City or Austin, Texas, they might suddenly start to see the need for the biggest, the best, and the most. 
So he's counting, Groves is counting on, again, a perverse kind of empathy from the American readers, which is the furthest thing from, from John Hersey's intention. I mean, he's, he's, right. you know, he's there to show that these bombs have no, this is the end of days. If, if things, you know, go wrong, if there's another, if there's a nuclear war or what he would later call slippage, um, a nuclear accident. Um, so ultimately Leslie Groves does, does green light the manuscript, which was the most astonishing revelation in my research. And yeah, I was uh, not knowing the narrative, reading it, I was astonished. Um, just as um, Harold Ross and Henry Luce were enemies, institutional, cultural, political, uh, Groves and MacArthur were also enemies. So uh, Hersey, I think, got lucky on that. I don't think that was planned. Very briefly, Leslie, um, tell me about the architecture of of the three, the thirty thousand word uh, mm. piece, because whilst it reads very naturally now, it was quite revolutionary for its time. Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, the thirty thousand word article. I mean, today in you know today's magazines, if you get a two thousand word article, you're you know the luckiest guy or girl in town. Um, it was what one editor, one former New Yorker editor, described to me as an unprecedented editorial splurge. Um, so Hersey starts writing the story. Originally, it's supposed to be um, a series, um, a, a reporter at large series. They're going to run it over several issues. And as he's writing it and the emotional impact of this enormous piece of journalism um, is becoming apparent to him and to his editors, his editor, William Sean, says, look, we can't we can't run this over a series of weeks. We have to it can stay in four parts, but it all has to be in one issue. Well, this had never been done before. And so William, you know, Sean, when he goes to Harold Ross, who again is the editor in chief of the New Yorker, Harold Ross, you know, he's he's really at first deeply wary of this idea. Um, he just says things, he says that he thinks it would just be too shocking for for readers at first or you know, too immersive. He's really grappling with the idea of it. And already the story is going to be so controversial and um huge that put like hanging a lantern on it in this way by by making it into just one issue um it it almost pours you know fuel onto the flames um so it takes harold ross a while to come around to the idea of running it in one issue but then once he he agrees to do that the team is all in and they decide that they're just going to make this into a blockbuster issue and that it's it's going to be you know something that even if people haven't read it it's all they will be talking about and so, it's just a, a single issue dedicated entirely to this one story which uh, it, it never done before absolutely and so the all of the other contents of the magazine were taken out you know smartly you know they took out the cartoons for which the new yorker remains famous um, and all other articles. And so it's important to say, and, and colorful to, to say also that the only people who did know that they were doing this within the New Yorker was um, Harold Ross, William Sean, and John Hersey, and then what they called the makeup man, who is you know literally the editor who is responsible for putting together the, the, the magazine. So all of the other staffers at the New Yorker were kept in the dark about the fact that this controversial issue was being made all the advertisers were kept in the dark. And so their ads were still going to be run alongside um, Hersey's story of Hiroshima. So there's Hiroshima and then here's a hat or here's some Lux soap or here's a bra. Um, so they, they, they got surprised also when, when it came out. 
And so the editors are, themselves are literally bringing the proofs of the magazine to the to their printers in Connecticut. Um, so that's that's what I meant when I said that it was their own version of the Manhattan Project. Yeah, I was struck also. You you don't say this, but uh, Hersey must have been a very self confident journalist to be so accepting of New Yorker editing. They went over it with a with a with a fine tooth. Yeah. Uh, your book, of course, is called Fallout. It's and, and the word fallout has many different meanings: the fallout of radiation sickness, but also the fallout of of, of Hearst's book. The book ends on this fallout. It had an enormous impact on the world, Leslie, didn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And in a way that I think you know we can't probably can't fathom today a single article having such an enormous impact as as John Hersey's Hiroshima did. I mean, there was before Hiroshima and then there was after. And so I think it, you know one of the the most important immediate effects. Well, well, first of all, it, it did re reveal to to not just Americans, but people around the world, the true implications of having the world having entered into the atomic age. Um, and you know what nuclear warfare held in store for for all of us anywhere in every corner of the globe if nuclear warfare was allowed to to happen in the future. You know, second of all, it it showed forever that uh, atomic bombs were not conventional mega weapons; that they were radioactive experimental weapons, and that the U.S. Um, from the medical teams to the military teams still really didn't have a full picture of what they had wrought with these weapons. Um, and also, it, 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 another thing that it did is it, it changed the attitude in America overnight towards the bombs. And there had been most Americans, the vast majority of Americans, in August of 1945 had really supported, like overwhelmingly supported the bombings of, uh, of the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, I think 75 or 80 percent said that they, they strongly supported it and something like 23 or 25 percent of those polled um, said that they wished that the, the, the Japan could have been bombed many more times with atomic bombs before Japan had surrendered. So it was part the 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 joy that surrounded the bombings in, in America it wasn't just about the end of the war and World War II, you know, remains the deadliest conflict in human history. But it was also a sense of sheer vengeance. And one one reader wrote into the New Yorker and he said that after he had read Hiroshima, he said this this story is going to forever take the quote Fourth of July attitude out of um, out of the, the the general public opinion about Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And I think it imbued the public attitude towards the bombings with a sobriety that it hadn't had before. And it wasn't necessarily always because people felt suddenly contrite about what they had done to, you know, to largely civilian Japanese populations, because many people still felt that they got what they deserved and still today feel that the Japanese got what they deserved. Um, but it, what do you think, by the way, did, did 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 the writing of this story change your mind? Did you start out a skeptic of the the moral justification for this? What what? How has your mind changed in terms on on the um, on the nuclear bomb front? On the should or shouldn't the Americans have dropped a bomb on, on the the two bombs on Japan? Did your did your your view change in terms of researching the book? I think maybe a little bit i think you know look the predominant the predominant idea in america to this day is that the atomic bombs shortened the war 
that they saved both American and Japanese lives by avoiding the land invasion that had been planned for Japan for the fall of 1945. I think, look, and also there was a widespread belief that the Japanese as combatants were unrelentingly tenacious and would have fought to the last man and woman. Um, and that the last the, the last portion of this war, if it were a land invasion, was going to be just excruciating. Um, and a lot of the journalists who were going in on the ground to to cover in nineteen in August of nineteen forty five also still you know felt felt this way about about the Japanese and felt that the bombs had shortened the shortened the war. I would say that I find the arguments of the time of the government at the time that they could not have created a demonstration of their bomb in an uninhabited area to the Japanese. I find. I find those arguments unconvincing. I do feel that less they, less convincing now after researching the book than before. Yes, absolutely. Because I mean, when you look at their when you look at their rationale for why they say that it would have been um, not tenable to drop a bomb, for instance, on an uninhabited Pacific island, which they ended up doing, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of times in future nuclear tests. Anyway, they said that. Um, it, it, it could have been a public relations disaster for the U.S. if they had invited, you know, international observers to do this test bomb, um, and then it was a dud. It would have been discrediting, and 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 so that that was their rationale. Well, guess what? I mean, they had already tested a bomb um, successfully in in New Mexico um, in July of 1945. So I, I find that I find the argument unconvincing. I think the, they, the, the fallout uh, from. Uh, the, the the Hersey uh, piece, uh, which you talk about in your book, Fallout, it landed on the desk of Harry Truman, the American president at the time, the guy who was, of course, responsible morally for making the decision for whether or not to, to drop the bomb. Do you think that Truman read this? I, I wasn't entirely clear from your, from your uh, book whether or not he read it. He certainly saw the cover. I would be extremely surprised if Truman hadn't read it or at least been briefed on it. And um, so the, initially after Hiroshima came out, it, as you, you said before, like every every America stopped and, and read it or talked about it. And it was covered on 500 radio stations. They were reselling the magazine. I mean, with a 15 cent cover price, they were reselling the magazine for $6 a week or two. Yeah, there, there was a black market for it immediately. Incredible. Yeah, it was, and it was, and it wasn't just in America. It was around the world. It was read for you know four nights consecutively on ABC News, which was then radio, and then the BBC. I mean, it was covered everywhere from Peru to Jerusalem to to I mean everywhere. So there was no everywhere no, except Japan and Russia, right? Right. We'll we'll, we'll get to that um, if you if you like. But with with Harry Truman, so there's there's no response from the White House. And you know, Harold Ross and his team at the New Yorker are you know drumming their fingers and waiting to you know see what happens to them after they've released this report, which is very embarrassing to the U.S. government. And um, so finally, Harold Ross decides to to kick the hornet's nest, and he he has read an article, um, a, a little snippet in the New York Daily News or the New York Post, where um, Harry Truman has uh, reportedly been asked by a White House um, press pool reporter. Um, have you read John Hersey's Hiroshima? It's creating, you know, quite a stir. And uh, Harry Truman reportedly responded, "I never read the New Yorker; it only makes me mad." So Harold Ross, um, some things never change. 
and uh, Harold Ross immediately sends you know several copies to the to the White House uh, press secretary um, and says, you know, we we want a response on this, and you know, has 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 the president of the United States read it, and it basically is he the only person in America who hasn't, um, or is just you know pretending not to. We never get. Um, we never get an answer about whether he has read it in person again or has been briefed on it, but he's definitely aware of it. And um, along with other principal figures in uh, the wartime government, Harry Truman uh, helps um, spur the creation of a rebuttal, a rebuttal article um, that was eventually ostensibly authored by the former Secretary of War, Henry Stimson, but was co-authored by what another um, biographer called the Old Boy, uh, Old Boy War Department Network. Um, and it was it 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 kind of it it tried to reclaim the narrative from the the profound worry that Hersey's article had had created. Leslie, seventy five years after the bomb was dropped in twenty twenty, we began this conversation with a map of deaths of yeah. coronavirus. We are all unfortunately all too familiar with with massive amounts of death, two three thousand people dying every every day over 300,000 deaths altogether um the the, the bombing of Hi Hi Hiroshima or Hiroshima which was the, the bomb was called the little boy for those people watching it you see the the, the bomb itself uh, this this instrument this agent of death what did writing this book and and do in terms of making sense for you of 2020 and the deaths associated mm -hmm. with covid-19 well, I think, you know, again, World War II had been the deadliest conflict in human history, 45 million civilians dead around the world. And that's that may be an underestimation, 15 million combatants, almost 500,000 Americans dead, um, which, by the way, seemed to me like a shocking number until, you know, we started ratcheting up our own COVID deaths. I mean, what, we're at 319,000 today Yeah, um, in, in 10 months, um, known deaths. Um, and I think, you know, one of the challenges that Hersey faced in telling the story of Hiroshima at the end of World War II, when atrocity fatigue was so total, not just in America, but around the world. I mean, people just wanted, they had seen carnage on an unprecedented level play out in front of their eyes, play out on their newspaper front pages. And so when the initial estimates of, you know, 100,000, 125,000 dead in Hiroshima from, from the bombing um, came out, there was a numbness, you know, this, this imperviousness to the human element behind that clinical casualty statistic. And so Hersey, when he wanted to tell the story of Hiroshima, one of his biggest challenges was getting behind that casualty statistic and and depict to people and, and to you know what does it mean to have a hundred thousand bodies, you know, one hundred twenty five thousand human beings dead from a single bomb that weighed ten thousand pounds. And so again, what he chose to do was was show, just six people out of those hundred thousand, and so if if the human mind could not react to the mathematics of a hundred thousand, it could react to the experience of six regular folks going about their their regular their regular routines. And so what Hersey was able to do is he was able to 
chisel behind the, the numbness that comes with reading a number like 100,000 dead or 319,000 dead and showing individual narratives. And that is really what got to people. You know, for the first time, they really understood what nuclear warfare looked like, what it meant for, for human beings, what it could mean for them and their families. And I feel that you know, Hersey gave, gave in, in, with that kind of storytelling, gave journalists today a tool to tell the story behind, you know, the mass COVID casualties that we're seeing right now. It always has to come back to telling the human story. Always. I agree. I actually, I visited Hiroshima two or three years ago and I went to the museum and the thing that most struck me were the, the, uh, the sandals, the shoes from the, from, from the, the, the children and the old people who were burnt alive. It's rather like the shoes at Auschwitz. Or the um, wristwatch that has stopped exactly at 8.15 right. a.m. I mean, you're right. It's absolutely the physical objects and right. anything that, that brings it down to that. And the two places that I would, if, if people want to be educated about the horrors of the 20th century, Auschwitz and Hiroshima are the places to go. But your book... Um, Leslie is, is really an important and, and wonderful read. I want to encourage everyone to read this book, Fallout, the, Hiro the Hiroshima cover-up and the reporter who revealed it to the world. It's essential reading, and it may indeed inspire some journalists in 2020 to write the equivalent books about COVID-19. Um, Leslie, I know you're in uh, Los Angeles, just down the road from me in these strange times. In addition to your book, what else should people be reading? Well, if people um, wanted further reading on uh, After Fallout, I highly recommend this book that was actually written by one of my, prof let me get into the, there we are, um, written by one of my professors from Williams College about, called Atomic Doctors. And um, this was James about- L. Nolan. Yes, by Professor James L. Nolan. And it was, I mean, I've been very immersed in this world for many years and my jaw was on the ground. This just came out right after my book came out in August. And it was about um, the team of doctors that was um, uh, part of the Manhattan Project. And also they were among the first in, in Hiroshima, Nagasaki. And it was, as the US government was trying to evaluate the qualities of the bomb it had just created. These doctors were on the front lines of, of examining the, the the effects of um, of the bombs. If you want to read more about the world of um, the New Yorker um, from its inception up through the 2000s, this book about town by Ben Yagoda, I thought was was pretty wonderful. Um, and uh, a lot, the New Yorker was just so personality driven, and it's a pure pleasure to to uh, to be in the world and see the evolution of the publication. Um, and then also because I don't only read about nuclear policy and Hiroshima, I have like many other Americans been watching The Queen's Gambit on Netflix. And so I just picked up the original and there we are. Um, so the, uh, the Queen's Gambit by Mr. Tevis and uh, it's pretty wonderful. And then I also picked up this famous book by Mr. Nabokov which was an inspiration for Mr. Tevis for uh, for the Queen's Gambit. So those are my those are my extracurricular books for the moment. Well, Leslie Bloom, I want to thank you and congratulations on the book. It's won lots of Best of 2020 awards, much deserved. I want to wish you a very happy and healthy New Year, 
And we will look forward to having you once again on Keen On to talk about your, your excellent writing, your journalism and your books. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on. And here's to best wishes for a better 2021. You've been listening to Keen On, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week. And thanks so much for listening.